Sound design. The best move you could make as a new producer is grab all your channels, turn them all down halfway, and then take your monitor volume and turn it up. And people often don't believe me or they laugh and they're like, come on, it's not that easy. That's such a stupid solution. But that's really the truth. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online career coaching program, Optimized for Audio Professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by sound engineer, composer, and teacher, Steve Knotts. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Nathan. So Steve, I definitely want to talk to you about building a career in the audio industry, living in Prague, and your new course for Ableton producers called Make Space for Bass. But first of all, if you were going to stay up all night drinking tea and listening to, I don't know, the same album over and over again, what would it be? Probably it would be a SoundCloud podcast from this guy, Johnny Blue, who's like in the, he's in the Psytrance world, but like on the dub side of it. So he does these really down-tempo things that go on through these long, it's, it's like almost like meditation music, but it's electronic music with bass and beats and glitches and nature samples and that kind of stuff. So Steve, uh, how did you get your first job in audio? Well, um, it was a broken Mackie that my studio partner bought and it was, I call it the Snapple Mackie because it wasn't working right. I popped off the bottom cover underneath and saw this big splash mark that looked like that fizzy splash that happens when you pour liquid on active electronics. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, this was in New York. I brought it to a repair shop called Ears. That's, um, I think it's still there. It's Expert Audio Repair and Services with these great techs. Um, Jeff Blenkinsop was the head guy, and then Doug Tao was the other guy, and Lendell Williams was working there. Amazing dudes who had had world experience on sound systems and tours and studios. So I brought in this little 16-channel Mackie, and I asked this guy, Jeff, I said, it's not working right, can you check it out? And so he plugged in a tone generator on channel one, and he plugged in a, a cable to the output on the main outs, and it worked fine. And he looked at me and said, what's the matter? And I said, well, it's only coming out channel, the right channel, the left channel is intermittent. And we plugged in the cable on the left side, and it was intermittent. And then, then there was this moment that I'm just going to remember forever where he, instead of leaning over to do something else on the on the test bench... He stood up and turned towards me and looked at me and said, do you want a job <laughs> with his British accent? And I was like, what? And he, uh, he basically hired me to, literally <laughs> to, that's how it started. I don't know. I guess he needed some help. I literally started um, working there. This was during school. So, um, you know, after, after city college class, I would go down there, like sweep the floor, add water to the soldering station sponges and basically do soldering of components after the tech guys did diagnostics with figuring out what to do. Cause I didn't really know how to do total, like reading a block diagram and figuring out what's wrong with the circuit board with the oscilloscope. But uh-huh. I got solder. So they'd give me this thing and they're like, here, change out 400 capacitors in this rack of EQs. And I'd like spend a week doing it, <laughs> but it was an amazing wow. job. I mean, really? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Or like fixing, you know, changing out all the, all the transducers inside a 10 sets of headphones from a studio. And there were people coming through. Jeez, like, you must have been amazing at soldering by the time you got done. Well, the thing is, if you have a good soldering station that stays at the same temperature and has enough power to do it, it's fine. And then you get the solder suckers. And, you know, if you have the right tools, it's really not that hard. But trying to do it at home with a pencil, soldering pencil and on a power plug from a 110 socket, it's like 
the tip is constantly changing temperature and getting dirty, and it's hard to do a clean job that way. Oh, yeah. so it's not me, it's the tools. It's it's a big part of it, man. You just need more juice. <laughs> yeah, I have used really good soldering irons and then like had to do something at home, and it's like, oh, Jesus, all right. Maybe you can desolder something, but you can't, Is especially not putting solder anywhere. There's the plastic components that like just melts and burns and gets gross. <laughs> Still, what an amazing story of a first job. I mean, like, we've all had those stories of, like, needing work and just, like, walking in the right place at the right time. And it's like, you can't recreate that. It seems like a moment of magic, you know? It was. I was lucky, I guess. I don't know. Readers of Sound Design Live will remember you, Steve, from a two-part article that you wrote a couple of years ago called Making a Living as a Sound Engineer. So I was wondering if you could just kind of refresh everyone's memory with the theme of that article, because I really liked it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I remember that one. And I, I did go back and reread it to remember it. I was laughing at how it was written. Um, that was when I was living in Czech Republic. <laughs> <Okay>. and <laughs> Well, you know, I, I like to tell stories and everything. And the theme of that article for me was basically being observant about what the venue is doing. Like, like when you're trying to make a career, you're going to basically do it by working with either clients who come to you or going to venues where you're helping the client. But the number one thing is just to be observant of what they need and how to solve their problem for them because nobody it, like in the in the world of real people nobody really wants to hire a sound engineer they just want to have music and have it work to help them make money by either selling drinks or selling their advertising that has the voiceover perfectly recorded from the first try or whatever so the theme for me was just like being really observant looking at what the problems are knowing how to solve them even when you can't explain it to the even when the when the customer can't understand <clears throat> understand their own problem you have to be able to prove that you are solving the problem <laughs> doing something they don't understand. And that goes along with a huge thing about person personality and being easy to be to work with and not um, not laughing at someone when they have ridiculous setups that you see. <laughs> it's refreshing to think about it that way, you know, because I think we kind of get into our own heads and our own egos pretty deep about like how special we are and how everybody needs us and how we have this amazing service to offer. And then, you know, you're kind of confronted with the reality of whatever the demand is in my city, whatever, whatever the demand is in my, uh, the venue that I'm working at, like what are the, the thing that really moves cash around this place is alcohol probably, or something like that. So it's, it's, yeah, it's good to keep that in mind. Yeah. It's hard to put yourself price wise in, into the language of a person who like, you know, they want to shave 2% off their cleaning supplies budget for the month. And you got to be there telling them to buy a new amp. And they're like, Oh my God. What are you <laughs> well, one of the big conversations I've been getting in to over and over again with my students recently is that a lot of them want to know how to get their clients and colleagues on the same page as them. Like basically they want their clients and colleagues to care as much about sound system design and sound system tuning as they do, which is impossible, right? Because they're, they're yeah. hiring us to do that job. That's, it's our job to care about that stuff. Um, it's their job to care about whatever the client wants, like selling more t-shirts or uh, selling this their software or their merchandise or those kinds of things. And so you're kind of, people feel like they're kind of butting heads, but it's like this whole skill of, you know, client management and boss management and, you know, managing those above you and, and the people that you're working with, it can be the struggle to say like, why don't they think like I do, but that's almost the wrong question, right? Yeah. Um, it reminds me of situations where the, you can talk till you're blue in the face and they won't believe you, but 
if you tell them something like, uh, well, you know, I work for this other restaurant right in the center of town and they don't do it. They, you know, they do it this way. And like, if you can call in the big guns and give them actual proof from somebody they do respect who's doing it differently and who has invested in the, the service or product, then they'll believe that. And it, even though the, <laughs> the example person might not understand it either, you, sometimes you have to just pull out the big guns and be like, well, this is how it's done, you know. I mean, there are some people that that works. Yeah, you're never going to cite... You're never going to cite theory or uh, maybe physics and say, this is why we should be doing it. Um, no one's going to care about you, that except you and me. But um, if you can say, if you can connect it to some result, like that's kind of the beginning of a conversation with normal people, I guess. Yeah, I love that thing that um, you passed this on to me from Bob McCarthy, where he said, uh, you just stop and ask the venue manager, do you want to sell every seat in the club? And you know, obviously they're going to say yes. And then you say, okay, so let's make that happen. And by the way, we're going to avoid complaints, which are bad press. So let's, you know, knock those out with the same stone here. We all kind of go through this where you learn something and then you're like, okay, now I know this thing. And now I see it everywhere. Like I see problems everywhere and I have the solution and I'm going to tell everybody about it. And then it's such a letdown because nobody wants to hear your your solution. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I, I can add a little something from the blogging world that if if you're a producer or a sound engineer and you want to in, increase your client base, one of the things you can do is take a little trick from the technical writing lessons where you, it's called know your audience. And basically, if you're seeing these common problems, put up a blog, put up a blog post that says um, sound systems for restaurant owners, top 10 mistakes people make or most three most important things you need to know as a restaurant owner when you're improving your sound system or even basic stuff like why your sound system adds to the revenue of your restaurant. And you can find sources for that kind of thing and and slap up a blog post for a thousand words or something like that. And then if you can direct your clients to that, suddenly that's credibility and it makes you look professional and it educates them on actually why the topic is important in the first place. So then they're in position to evaluate your services and say, oh, I need these services because, you know, music in my restaurant is going to add to my bottom line or something. And so you're not just in the middle of a conversation where you're saying, here's what you need to do. and Here's what you need to do without any authority or any relationship whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. That might be actionable for people in the um, podcast land audience. (laughs) I hope. At some point you can stimulate someone's curiosity and then they're going to say, Steve, what do you well, how would, how would you do it? And then, then, aha, then you can say like, oh, here's how I would do it. But it takes a little while to get there. Oh uh, yeah. They, they want the solution. They don't want the theory. So, Steve, you and I met at the City College of New York in the music department's recording program there called the Sonic Arts Center. Um, Now, I know that you and I both really enjoyed our time there, but I get a lot of emails from people asking if they should go to school to study audio production and sound engineering, and if so, where. So... Could you talk about maybe one or two of the most important things you gain from spending time at the Sonic Arts Center to sort of maybe satisfy some of potential students questions about like, should I, and if so, where? The biggest things that I learned from music school, including theory, composition, harmonic analysis, and choir, as well as the Sonic Arts Center, and that was where we did, you know, 
everything from basic electricity up to running a studio session and even basics of mastering and stuff, it was just getting a sense of what is the range of professional information and knowledge that's out there. Um, it's really hard to find out on your own how much there is to know, first of all, and then what's important and what's fluff, second of all, and then third, what's important for me now, like how to solve my problem. Uh, for example, I, I made the decision to go to music school because of compressors. <laughs> I was making beats at home. I had a set. Yeah, man, I had my MPC 2000. I was recording on cassette, cassette tape. I started to hear that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I started to hear basically that a compressor is the thing you need to stop distorting your recordings and control your volume and blah, blah, blah. But I could not find out for the life of me what compressors really were all about. I mean, think about it. If you're trying to get a quick understanding of it and then there's like, oh, it's the ratio and the threshold and the dynamic range and like all this stuff, you know, and right. I even I even got a hold of a cheap Behringer Composer Pro compressor and started playing with it. And that was a great way to learn by doing everything wrong and then figuring out what the levels are and stuff. But I, I really had a sense that there was a lot more out there. I had no clue of how to understand what was out there. And studying at City College gave me such a great foundation. I mean, basic stuff like grounding and electricity were absolutely fundamental for everything else that comes later. And likewise, in the music theory department, um, you know, I've been playing piano my whole life, but for me, my intuitive piano playing was like, oh, you know, if I play three notes apart, it sounds like this. And if I play four notes apart, it sounds like this. But I didn't understand intervals or how to make chords or inversions or anything. And going to school... Uh, with Dr. Jablonski gave me the foundation to understand like, okay, I hear something in my mind. I know how it feels. Now I understand how to find and grab the chords to project that feeling through the music without experimenting to find different finger voicings and stuff. Like it just gives you the tools to do what you want right away. Gravity is not going to show you how deep the rabbit hole is. You're not Alice in Wonderland. So <laughs> it's like you need someone to say like, no, it goes a lot farther down. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things... Okay, not the best metaphor, but we got that. <laughs> one of the big problems I see with my students all the time is they open up the audio effects browser in, any, in Ableton or anything, and they're just totally overwhelmed by how many audio effects there are. They have no idea what to use. It all looks like this ocean of options. And you could, you know, we know you could spend forever playing around with um, with the parameters and plugins. So like studying formal audio engineering gave me a universal skill where I can go to any analog hardware studio and look at any box and pretty much figure out, oh, you know, this is either a compressor, a gate, a limiter, an EQ, or whatever it is, a flange or whatever any audio workstation or any software plugin or any hardware studio and feel like, hey, I can walk in and figure out this mixing board because I know what's supposed to be there and what's going to be there and how to just adjust my understanding of it to match the gear I'm looking at. Like if you look at a new plugin and you want to find out, oh, it's a synth plugin. Okay, well, there's going to be a cutoff filter and resonance I want to play with right away. And you go from there. You need someone to show you how deep the rabbit hole is so how how much it's possible to learn out there otherwise you'll feel like maybe you know it all already i really appreciate this what you said is that you need someone to to show you what's important versus the fluff so there's just so many myths that float around in the audio industry for some reason I right know, i and know so you don't have to do like hours and hours of research on your own and like experimenting and like basically inventing the wheel and starting from the bottom you can stand on the shoulders of giants and have someone say like X, Y, and Z are correct. A, B, and C are incorrect. Okay, great. Let's move on. Yeah. And one of the nice things I learned while I was researching online courses as a mode of learning is that, um, you know, obviously everybody can Google whatever they want and get great facts about a very specific thing. 
But one of the big value things you get from an online course or a university education, if you're going to do a bricks and mortar kind of education, is that someone else is organizing the information in a sequence so you go through it in the right order. Like, uh, you, you don't want to be a newbie and start, like, saving up for a lexicon reverb before you understand gain staging and how to make your track sound good before, you know, reverb is not going to save a bad mix is what I'm trying to say. So having somebody who can organize that ocean of information into a, a sequence that you can understand in your mind as like a step-by-step sort of system or recipe or method or kind of, well, recipe is a good word, like for cooking. Uh, that's really valuable. Sure. Could you talk just for a little bit about the nuts and bolts of being an expat? Maybe what are some of the legal and financial challenges to making that work? I know this could be like a whole like hours and hours conversation. Like there's lots of shit that you had to go through <laughs> to, to be able to live in Prague for a while. And um, I did the same thing to be able to live in Portugal and then Slovakia for a while you, you just can't imagine like the number of just like forms you have to fill out in like red tape and stuff. Uh, because you know, immigration and, and tourism is like a huge thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm like taking over yeah. the question, the answer that is so, so yeah. Tell us about Prague. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to say to anybody who has not lived outside of the U S is it's immeasurably valuable to start your visa process before you leave. Visa is a residence permit. Um, most Americans for the places we want to visit, like the average American wanting to go to Europe, right? You're automatically going to get a 90 day tourist visa, which means you basically can buy a plane ticket and go as long as you come back before 90 days are up. Now that's great when you want to explore and sort of scout out a place to, to land and to stay in. But if you do what I did, which is to go on vacation and then decide you're not coming back, <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> I that, forgot about that. I know. That's, right. <laughs> that's how I got out of New York. Um, you know, when you're in a foreign country and you decide you want to make a residency permit and stay there, you have to actually apply for that residency permit from outside of the country because the paperwork system says, you know, you're a foreigner applying for residency. So logically, you're applying from your home country before you get here. So if you're already there, you it, it's a mess. Um, the best thing you can the, I mean, seriously, the best thing you can do is go to the embassy in the U.S. that represents the country you're going to travel to. Go to their website, find out what has to happen, talk to a real person, find out the forms and the process and what is needed because it's so much easier to do that from here. Like, for example, if you need to show a bank statement or a tax return or, you know, a notarized home address or something like that, it is so much easier to get that stuff when you're still in the U.S. speaking English. I mean, imagine if you're in Italy in some office and they say, everything is fine, you're 99% done, now we just need a notarized bank statement translated into Italian that shows that you have a real bank account in the U.S. And like, what are you going to do? You're going to get on your phone and call your bank in the U.S. and ask them to translate your bank statement to Italian and get it notarized? Like, (laughs) it's not going to happen. You know, and and these little pitfalls are such a pain when when you're away from home in a foreign language. But if you start them first and get the information, I mean, believe me, I'm the last person to tell you that you should follow all the rules to the letter. But when it comes to immigration and visas, it just saves you a headache to do that. If you want to really have a smooth trip, save up a bunch of money and make sure you can pay an immigration lawyer to do all that stuff for you. That's the the real, you know, <laughs> professional businessman's way of doing it, but it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. 
You started with a student visa and then you moved on to a work visa or what did you do? No, I started with a tourist visa and then I had to open a small business and transform my residence into business license, which was a bunch of paperwork and money. So I want to ask about the money piece because I started with a student visa and then I, I think I kept just doing a student visa. And one of the pieces of a student visa is that you have to prove that you have a certain amount of money. So usually you get someone to sign for you that says like, oh, here I'm connected to my parents. Uh, here's their tax return from the last year that says that this is how much money they have. Huh? They basically just don't want you to like come there to work. So you have to <clears throat> prove like I have enough money, so I don't need to come here to work. I'm just a student. And then later on, I had to do that with somebody else. And so that was always a tough piece to like get someone to like surrender their financial information to the state of Portugal uh, to prove that, you know, I wasn't going to like stay there to work, which I totally was in the end. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So <laughs> yeah. how did you deal with that piece? I got lucky where I was applying for my first Jivnostensky uh, list, which is a small business owner license. You might not believe this, but... The day I put in the application, they took my debit card and photocopied it. <laughs> and that was the proof. They're like, we want a photocopy oh, wow. of your video. And I was like, okay. And, you know, I had like $1,000 or something. And they what? Yeah, so that's how I dealt with it. Um, another way that people deal with it is they, I, I know people who have had their immigration lawyer deposit $10,000 in their bank account temporarily. And then they make the application and then they take the money back out and switch accounts. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Okay. But I also met, um, you, you know, I had to, it's, it was a requirement to have health insurance for the duration of your of your stay. So if you're applying for a two-year visa, you need to document that you have two years worth of health insurance. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of requirements. Uh, like, what you said about co-signing is, is one way that you can do it. There are different kinds of work visas. Like, if you're going to get hired by a company where your residency is dependent on being hired by them, that can be one whole kettle of fish where you have to demonstrate that the company was unable to hire a national person from the country there. Like there has to be a good reason for, for them hiring internationally. Um, I got around that by essentially starting my own business and hiring myself where I had to take on all the tax liability and all the paperwork of doing it on my own. So, you know, there are a lot of different things of what hoops you have to jump through. So talking about hoops you have to jump through, do you, looking back, do you think that was maybe the simplest, most effective way to do it? Or if you did it again, would you have chosen a different route? Oh man, next time I do it, I'm going to do it completely differently. The only good thing I can say about how I did it was I experienced the full Czech bureaucracy with all its hilarious hallways and twists and turns, but <laughs> okay. I don't recommend it. Do your planning up front, save enough money so you don't have to sweat it and make sure your trip doesn't get interrupted by bad planning and learn the freaking language. Like I was so dumb. I didn't even know enough Czech to get around. So learn the language. So just out of curiosity, first of all, uh, did you study the language after you got there? And like, how long did that take you as far as like integrating yourself? Oh, yeah, I definitely studied. Um, it it took the whole time. I, I was there for seven years and I was learning the language constantly. And I still don't, I wouldn't say I'm fluent in Czech, but I started with the travel dictionary. And then I went up to talking to friends and writing down phrases that they thought were the most relevant, first of all, like how to order in a restaurant and whatever. 
And then I got a private tutor and had an hour a week of conversation, vocabulary, grammar, and then just immersion in the culture was the other way to learn it. And it was still hard. (laughs) I know this is a big difference, actually. In Slovakia, there's very little immigration. And so when someone like me comes to the immigration office and they're like, I need to apply for a visa, like, number one, there's no lines. So that's nice compared to like Portugal, where there's like so many immigrants that there's like lines for days, basically, to get any of that stuff done at the border control. But Slovakia, like, there's no lines because there's nobody (laughs) immigrating there. But at the same time, they don't have very sophisticated processes for it because they're just not used to someone like me. So, so it was, again, like pretty complicated. Um, it was very common, and there were always a ton of people in the different offices. But during the time I was there, the rules were changing constantly. So even the professional lawyers didn't know what was going to be the truth the day that you go to the office because the, you know, the Schengen border was changing. Um, countries in the in the EU were changing currencies and there were all different things like rules about like yes you can pay in euros no you can't pay in euros it like little details but then you go there and you find out you have to change your currency before you can pay the application fee um there there was always a problem of having to make an appointment and deal with a line different offices had different problems but generally being an american helped because you know i wasn't like a ukrainian plumber or a vietnamese shopkeeper like those people had a mm-hmm. honestly they had a hard time because of racism or the Romanian people. Oh man, you know the the Czech bureauc- bureaucracy was uh, not I would say enlightened. <laughs> sure, unfortunately, sure. it's it's just like that sometimes. You know, it's tough. Were there a lot of people speaking English, or were, did you pretty much just have to figure it out every time? Um, I had to bring a friend with me for almost every stage of the application process. For translation. Oh my God. That's how hard it was. (laughs) Uh, As for a street level, um, anybody our age or younger would have been studying English already. So they would, they would be bilingual, at least in Czech and English. But people older than me were people who grew up speaking Czech and Russian. So they would either speak Russian or possibly German as their second language after Czech. We, I know we want to talk about more audio stuff, um, but you were going to say something about food. So do you want to go ahead and put that in? Yeah, before you go traveling, find out what is common in the place you're going because it's such a wonderful thing to look forward to. And it's an easy way to get interested in a country, learn about the culture, learn about, like, like pick a city, you know, find out what are the popular restaurants there. And then you'll learn really important things like um, how much does a meal cost? What's the local currency? How much does that amount to in my currency? And it's a really valuable part of planning as well as, as fun. If you could take a look at your career in hindsight, what do you think is one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? Well, getting out of New York was the best decision because for a lot of reasons, um, the biggest reason was that rent and living expenses, as you know, (laughs) they were so high that I just, I did not have time to put energy into my own career the way I wanted to. I had to work a job and then find gigs on the side to first satisfy my need to like create and perform original music. And then if I wanted to make money at that on top of having a job and a girlfriend and a gig, you know, it was just not going to happen. So getting out of New York into a, I'm not sure how, how would I describe the market? I went to, uh, Prague was a smaller city with fewer audio professionals who do what I am good at. And it was also a growing location artistically so there were a lot of opportunities where people had a need for either sound technically or 
creative sound. Like, for example, I found myself playing piano for a theater company that I never would do in New York. I mean, if I if someone said to me in New York, go play p- piano for a theater company, I'd be like, what do you mean, go to Broadway? Are you crazy? Like, it'll take me 20 years, you know? <laughs> and, and it's true, it probably would take me 20 years. <laughs> so, I don't, you know, I don't know if relocating is an option for all the listeners, but um, identifying what skills you have and going to a place where you can use them, that was the best thing that I did. One of the top, top challenges I hear from people is there's not enough t- demand in my country. There's not enough demand in my city. Like, I just can't find opportunities in my city. And I almost never want to tell people to move because I feel like you should be able to make it work. But maybe you should go like where your ideal, like go to where the work is, go to where your ideal clients are, go to where you love the uh, culture, go to where you love the weather. Like if that's available to you, like shit, yeah, pursue yeah, that. Yeah, that's all good advice. Um, One little uh, spark of hope is how nice the internet is for connecting people with studios to people who need services. Like I've been um, getting some tracks mastered from people in other countries and it's amazing because I can send a high quality digital raw file to a guy who has an all analog hardware studio in you know London or whatever and he can just run it through his tube, tube gear, make it sound great and send it back and I don't have to have a personal one-on-one meeting about what I want the master to sound like and everything. So like if you're in a place without local demand, but you have nice studio gear, you can definitely find clients online who need things done, make some money that way. Um, of course, it takes online marketing and a bunch of internet time to do that, but that definitely does work. I was just going to say the opposite is true, I think, for live sound. Like you can't do that stuff through the internet. And so anywhere you are, people need audio, live sound, and they can't do that through the internet. And so if you're that guy in that town, like there's opportunities available. That's what I think. Yeah, I believe you. And I, I've always been very connected to the live performance end of things. So that can be tricky because some, unfortunately, some sound companies can be really closed, like a click. And they're like this macho thing where if you don't have like battle scars, you don't get to work at the gig and all this kind of crap. So, you know, that you got to deal with that stuff, too. Okay, Steve, let's talk about bass. Steve, you have this new course called, uh, sorry, you have this new course for Ableton producers called Make Space for Great. <laughs> Make Space for Bass. We can do this. <laughs> Make Space for Bass. Such a great title. Um, uh, it is a step-by-step mixing course to help you get tight, solid, low-end in all your tracks using only the built-in Ableton Live audio effects. So I want you to talk about that. And I thought as a way of getting into it, maybe you could go over some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to producing music in Ableton. And I thought I'd kick it off by reading this quote from a Sound Design Live reader named Matt who said, Biggest problem I see is the amount of sub bass used in live sound in the UK at the moment. Ruins the gig when I'm standing by the sound desk and all I can hear is low bass. Yep. Um, And that sounds like one of the best possible situations. Uh, The biggest mistake people make when they're new producers is pretty much leaving their channel volumes all too high and running out of headroom because it's easy to make a bunch of new sounds and create new tracks and add this and add that. And then you get your master channel up near, uh, up near zero dB or, or clipping into the red. So mistake number one is leaving all your channel gains too high. Mistake number two is trying to solve that by strapping on compressors and limiters and trying to make it sound punchy and tight or putting ozone on there or something. 
and basically squashing a mix that's overdone in the first place. The number one complaint that I hear of is that like, how do you make your kick drum sound good? Or how do you get your kick drum to cut through the mix or something? If your mix level is already up near zero dB and you have nowhere to to increase anything, you cannot turn up your volume. <laughs> there are a lot of solutions to that, but basically the biggest problem is just not understanding gain staging and headroom. And to compound that problem, people don't even know the words headroom or gain staging, and most of the manuals don't really talk about that because that's kind of an audio engineering okay. concept. I mean, there are a couple of things built into Ableton Live that are really good, like um, if you grab a drum rack and put it on a, on a session, the sample volumes are automatically set to minus 12 dB, which is a great foresight from Ableton to keep your drum rack from clipping, but there isn't enough of that kind of psychological volume manipulation ahead of time. Another big mistake people make is that they try to get volume, they try to get the feeling of a loud mix from turning up the channels in the software, but the truth is that volume comes from your amps and your monitor volume in the room. So the best move you could make as a new producer is grab all your channels, turn them all down halfway, and then take your monitor volume and turn it up. And people often don't believe me or they laugh and they're like, come on, it's not that easy. That's such a stupid solution. But that's really the truth. A mix with good headroom is basically a mix that exists at a lower level in the software or in your recording on your tape or on your CD or vinyl or whatever. The actual audio file is recorded at a lower level in the media. And then when you play it back, you turn up the volume to get a louder drop or a, a louder transient on the kick drum or more bass or whatever. It actually, the, the loudness and the volume come from the speaker system in the room and you're never going to get a loud mix to feel right by turning up all your channels and expecting it to get louder in your room. That's like a big disconnect that people don't understand. And I remember the moment I learned that too, if you want to hear a story about an internship. Yeah, yeah, tell me. I had an internship at Dungeon Rock Studios in Williamsburg around 2001. Wow, what a great name. Yeah, AJ Tissian, who's a great instructor and a great engineer. I don't think it's the same name anymore, but anyway, so there I was happily um, interning, which basically means I was sitting there doing nothing. And AJ, one time he said, uh, hey, turn that down. And, and I happened to be sitting near the master section of the mixer and he was over on the other side. So, okay, oh yeah, I can turn it down, I can turn it down. So I grab the master left-right fader, faders and bring them down. And he like gives me this death glare and shoots laser beams out of his eyes. And he's like, never touch the master fader. If you want to turn it down, you take the monitor volume, Steve. And he like put his hand on the monitor volume knob and showed me that that's where you change the volume in the room. And then basically explain, explained how the, um, the master channel is connected to like a DAT recorder or a tape recorder or your VU meters or like five other devices where you're going to mess up everything if you change your master left-right faders. Actually, I have students who do that where they, they overload all their channels, mess up their gain staging, take their master channel and lower it 6 dB and think problem solved. And I'm telling them like, no, you just took a distorted mix and made it quieter. And now it's even... It's, it's an even worse <laughs> signal-to-noise ratio. So now I'm like, okay, so I got to start by educating people. What's signal-to-noise ratio? What's headroom? Why does it matter? What's gain staging? How do I get some, you know? <laughs> that yeah. kind of stuff. Man, that's great. But you asked about bass. Specifically, um, the thing about bass is that the bass waveform takes up more room than high-frequency things. So if you get your bass right, you can, after that, you can add an unlimited number of like violins or, or female vocals on top in the mid-range. It's, it's a lot easier to mix high-frequency sounds into a session, but you cannot put two feet in the same shoe, which is like saying you cannot put two big fat kick drums in the same session at the same time in the low frequency because it just mm -hmm. does not work. And I learned this from Paul Kozell. I remember the day I learned this too. This was an amazing miracle. Um, I had been making headphones mixes with my MPC sampler and getting like that womb womb kind of mix where that and I didn't realize the mix 
was too much bass, the problems I had were like, I can't hear the snare drum or I can't hear the hi-hats or why is my brake loop so quiet? And it wasn't a problem mm-hmm. of those being quiet. It was a problem of um, mixing in headphones where I had to turn up the low end really loud to make it clear in the headphones because the headphones can't physically reproduce that bass waveform. So uh, okay. we were doing a uh, class on headphone mixes for a band in a tracking session, and Paul said, all right, so when you're making your headphone mixes, don't put up the bass guitar first because you're going to put it up too loud and have no headroom for all the other stuff that has to go into the mix. And then the problem that arrives is the vocalist wants more vocal and he can't get it because you get distortion from trying to turn up the vocal. And I was like, wait a minute, you never told us that. And he said, you never told us what? And I said, you never told us that bass physically has a bigger waveform that eats up headroom faster than other things. And he looked at me like, duh. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so uh, one of the big solutions, in fact, the whole course makes space for bass. I mean, the words make space are a secret code for like get headroom. And make space for bass is all about... Um, deciding if your kick drum is going to be the biggest sub-bass sound or if your bass line is going to be the biggest sub-bass sound. And then high-pass filtering the other stuff so you don't have that situation of just like all cluttered up, womb, womb, shallow, boring, flat, lifeless, dead, unlistenable, horrible, terrifying mixes. (laughs) I'm passionate about this topic. (laughs) So it sounds like it's more about uh, cleaning up the stuff you don't need and, and making space, as you said, than it is about adding things. So probably when people are writing in asking you questions like, how do I make my kick sound awesome? Or how do I make my bass really drop hard? They are thinking about like adding, like, where do I turn up something? And yeah. you are, your response is, eh, it's a little bit more complicated. It's you need to turn down all these other things. That's exactly true. It's an extension of the cut before you boost philosophy. I went through the first couple of modules and make space for bass and it was really fun. Um, to be able to watch how you work with the track in Ableton. So I think if you want to get a sense of what's going on in the course, the best thing would be to take a look at one of the videos. So Steve, if it's okay with you, I'll just drop in uh, some of the audio from one of the videos right now. Sure, let's do it. This is Steve Knotts from Mixitecture, and I'm going to show you the Subby Kicks drum rack today. Here is a little track I made to show it off, and when the beats come in, it sounds like this. put some nice bottom end in your world. So what is in the Subby Kicks drum rack? Um, 128 kick drum samples, first of all, going through the whole drum rack, and some macros to control them. Now this is part of the Make Space for Bass online course, so I put in the macros in a way that you can use those tools while you're learning about the tools in the course. Um, Like actually what I do is, it's kind of perverted, but I create broken sessions where I give people a problem and I say, okay, here's the session, play it and listen to it and realize that you're hearing a problem. Now we're gonna use these basic tools to fix it. And I show them like, here's an EQ. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun for me because I get to create things like, um, you know, a basic thing, like you've got a drum loop and a bass line and they sound okay and you're excited emotionally, but technically it could be a lot better. And we go through it step by step, but in addition to that, there is a YouTube tutorial, or I should say an MP4 tutorial on video that shows me going through the whole session. So in case you get lost, you can watch the video, you can see the changes, you can see the key commands on screen, and you get a view of it visually as it happens. Other people like to learn while they're driving or working or doing something else. So I put up an MP3 version that's like a, a, like a podcast, you can listen to it. And there is a PDF file you can download for reference later that has the um, lesson content with you know a summary at the end and stuff. And it's a lot of fun. People have been commenting that it's 
the best way to learn because you're actually doing it. You're not just watching YouTube and then trying to remember something later. It's um, it's pretty in depth, but they're also, you know, each module you can do in 15 or 20 minutes. So it's not like a, a four hour a day commitment or something like that. Hey, I just wanted to jump in in case you are now Googling Make Space for Bass and discovering that the course is not open for enrollment. At least it's not right now at the time of publishing this. My recommendation is that you head over to mixatexture.com. That's the word mix, then I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E, mixatexture.com. Sign up for Steve's mailing list there because that's the best way to find out when his courses are opening for enrollment since they're not always open all the time. Um, so if you head over to mixatexture.com, there's also a free email course right now called The Big Picture, Mixdown Basics for Ableton Live Beginners. And I think that is probably the best way of finding out when his courses open up for enrollment. I'm embarrassed to say, but when I follow the actual instructions I give my students, my mixes get better. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm making mix mistakes, but it's true that teaching it makes you better at what you're doing. And um, in general, if you here's a little a little tidbit for people who are talking about going to school or le learning something. One of the great things is learning from a person who is also excited about learning themselves. That means you should fi find a person who's excited to teach and who is still progressing because one of the bad things is that you get these really pompous people sometimes who act like, I know everything and you're a piece of crap because you don't know it, so you have to do this before you even start to get good. And Generally, those are not teachers I want to learn from. Those are not people I want to work with either. So don't, don't be, in all you new people out there, don't be intimidated by somebody who acts like a big, arrogant jerk. It's really, that's their problem. That's not your problem. Yeah, that applies all over the place, especially in the live sound world. You will definitely meet guys who feel threatened by newcomers or they have something to prove or they make you do the shit work just because they can. And that's none of the best engineers I've ever met are like that. Um, one of the best guys I know is a guy running a company here who's he treats he has three sons and he has them on gigs now because they're teenagers and he treats his crew like his family and he treats his family like his crew and makes them work and it's a much better way to work you you do learn new things and it's actually safer um, he's actually concerned about people not getting injured and that ends up saving money on equipment and repairs and it just makes the whole thing better so keep an eye out for that in the audio world sound design yeah.